Hey everyone, it's Joe Chicarone, and welcome to Built Not Born, episode 66. Today's guest is Derek Sivers. Derek Sivers is an author, an entrepreneur, a musician, and a TEDx speaker. Derek was the founder and owner of CD Baby. For a decade, CD Baby was the largest seller of independent music on the internet. Derek is the author of some incredible books like Hell Yeah or No, Anything You Want, and his latest, How to Live. Derek's TED Talks have millions of views. He is such a deep thinker. He has such an interesting perspective on life, how he structures it, what he notices, what he writes about. It was such an honor to have Derek on the show. Derek usually doesn't do these type of interviews, so I was so excited that Derek agreed to come on the show. It was a fun conversation. Please enjoy episode number 66 with best-selling author Derek Sivers. And remember, life is built, not born. Derek Sivers, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Derek, it's an honor to have you. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> you know, it's funny. It depends who's asking. And I, I love this social situation where you're on a train and somebody asks what you do and you don't want to talk to them. So you just make up something that shuts down the conversation. So it's funny. I have a few different answers to that. I can say what I have done in the past is I was a full-time musician for 15 years until I started a little music store to sell my music, and that turned into CD Baby, which became the largest seller of independent music on the web for 10 years. Sold that in 2008 for far too much money, which put me into the situation of wondering what to do next. And so since then, I have been thinking in public as an author and just published my fourth book. So... That's my answer. Wow. I want to get into your career as a musician, CD Baby, The Lessons mm -hmm. Learned, uh, which I believe you turned into the book, Anything You Want, or at least it based on your experience mm -hmm. there, which, is a, yeah. uh, which was my introduction to your work, which really uh, grabbed my attention. Cool. Uh, also, I want to get into your TED Talks, which I really like that have millions and millions of views, some great life lessons there, and uh, your two books, Hell Yeah or No, and How to Live. Those two books just really hit home with me, and there's just knowledge Thank in you. those books. Love the touch base there. But sure. before we get started, where did you grow up? Even that's a bit of a trick answer. I was born in California, moved to England when I was five, moved to Chicago when I was six, moved to Boston when I was 16, moved to New York City when I was 20. And I've been about moving every two years or so since then. So actually this, this not being from any one place is a big part of my identity. What caused that? Those particular moves on purpose, by accident? My dad is a particle physicist that was just taking jobs at laboratories around the world, you know, a uh, job in California, a job in Chicago, job in England. But then since then, I think it just, because I moved a lot as a little kid, it just kind of shaped my impression of how life is supposed to be, right? Like it mm. felt like this is what you do. You move every year. Every year you move somewhere far away. That's what life is. And I was actually really sad when we moved to Chicago when I was six and my mom said that we were just going to stay there for five or 10 years. I went, ah, like five <laughs> or 10 years. That's awful. It's like death. Death means, you know, you're not moving anymore, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's part of why I've moved a lot since then. Um, yeah, I just equated moving with life. Because life is movement. You look at when you stop moving, you die. Yeah, exactly. I, I, like there's days if I sit down for a long period of time, like my mind, maybe not dead, but it's so slow. Like I have to move to be my best self, like thinking wise and like feeling yes. like, physically. And it, it's almost like the death of at least the day you're in if I don't move that much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Looking back with all those multiple moves, when you look back, what's the most powerful memory of your childhood? Maybe the one I, I actually said already, which was after moving every year for five or six years, moving to Chicago, having, and I remember where I was standing when I asked my mom, 
Like, how long are we going to stay here? And she said, oh, maybe five, maybe 10 years. And I just, I started sobbing. It just, to me, sounded like the most awful situation to stay in one place for five or 10 years. And I still think that was pretty formative in my early years. How long did you wind up staying in Chicago? Yeah, 10 years. Then that was, you know, well, it's, that's when I was legally allowed to leave, right? So we moved there at six. And so at 16, I graduated high school a year early and I was like, bye-bye, getting as far away as I can. And where'd you go from there? That's when I went off to Boston to Berkeley Berkeley School of Music in Boston. When did you know, when did you Mm -hmm. figure out you wanted to be a musician? How early did that come about? 14. I mean, I always played music. Until then, just like piano lessons and viola and violin and clarinet as a kid. But at 14, I started playing guitar and I was like, this is it. This is what I want. And I am so thankful that I had this single mission from the age of 14 till 29. So for 15 years of my life, I wanted nothing but to be a great musician. And I feel bad for people that are just kind of adrift and they don't know what they want. Because I think it almost doesn't matter what you put your focus into, as long as you're focused on something, to become good at anything teaches you how to be good at anything, right? Like just the act of focusing instead of just being adrift. So it's like, I could have wanted to be a great mountain climber or uh, (laughs) ostrich racer or whatever it may be, but just the act of focusing on something and learning to be great at one thing, I think teaches you amazing life skills that then later you can apply to anything else you're doing. So I'm so thankful that from 14 to 29, I wanted nothing, nothing, nothing else than to be a great musician. Yeah. Because you look at the tactics or the idiosyncratic things you would do as a musician are applied to just to be a musician, but the principles you can apply to anywhere in your life. Like maybe you have to get up early. You have to go through with like maybe what Seth Godin calls the dip where it's fun in the beginning, then it gets yep. hard. And then, then you have to go through the dip. Yes. You love it enough to do the dip. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, do you bring other people with you? And, and do you, are you part of a community of, of like-minded people? Like everything that makes something like that work, the principles all remain the same, right? That's the same stuff. And you yeah. can take that to any part yeah, of your life. It's yeah, even learning how to, yeah. Learning how to practice, learning how to improve, all that stuff you just said. Yeah, that's yeah. so crucial. It's such great life lessons in there that I, I would recommend that for anybody. Just pick anything, especially for a teenager. Just like pick anything and just focus on that and be great at it instead of being adrift. If you look at anyone that's done anything of note, like Tiger Woods didn't play the saxophone and was a kickboxer. He did golf. Like Lance Armstrong, he rode his bike. Like Venus Williams, yeah. she played tennis. Like it wasn't tennis and jujitsu. There's one thing and you go focus. It's kind of like that microscope. Uh, You put the the sunlight, it warms the yard. But if you put the the magnifying glass, magnifying glass burns everything. It burns it up then, right? It catches on fire. Cool. Let's go. You're in Berkeley, right? So you're in Berkeley College of Music, great music school. What's your life lesson? You uh, teased out like your time at Berkeley. What would be your life lesson there? I I actually wrote a whole story about this. I can give you the easy URL if you go to Sivers. So S-I-V-E dot R-S slash Kimo, K-I-M-O. Kimo Williams was the name of my music teacher right before I went to Berkeley. And he gave me this amazing life lesson, which is the standard pace is for chumps. You don't have to go with the normal pace. So he taught me four semesters of Berkeley's harmony classes in two lessons. And he taught me two semesters of Berkeley's arranging classes in one lesson. And he just kind of had this super intense pace and showed me like, you don't have to go at the normal pace. I'll bet you that you can graduate Berkeley school of music in two and a half years. And I did. So that was my formative lesson. And that's in the book, anything you want. You speak to that, don't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's in there. And, um, but yeah, if if somebody just wants to, um, see it on the web, yeah. Sivers slash chemo. Yeah. And the standard paces for chumps. I mean, that's like the quote from the book. And I think that's where the community comes in. Well, if you go with a bunch of people that are like doing it as a hobby, you're going one pace. And if you're doing it for someone who's doing it competitively, mm-hmm. completely different pace. And you just speed up the process. Like with the recreational people are doing a month later that maybe the competitive people are doing in a week. You know, right? Yeah. You, you extrapolate that over five years. They're over here and the yeah. rec people are still like worlds away. Let's get to the book real quick. Let's get to anything you want. Here are my three takeaways. Maybe Mm -hmm. we could discuss. One is always take action. 
But when you take action, start small. If you're starting a business, start with one client. And the third one is the power of focus. It's the power of saying no and just focusing on exactly what you want. Don't be all over the place. Be in one spot. Great takeaways. I thank you. The one thing I know I struggle with, I think everyone does, the power of focus. It's so easy to be everywhere. Like you're just, Mm -hmm. you look at your schedule and it's like, there's 14 things, there's three conference calls, your kids practice at night. There's so much going on. How can the average person get more focus in their life? What do you think? How can you take that lesson from that book? How can the average person say, you know what? I got two, two kids. We have all these practices. I got work. I want to get to the gym. Mm. How can I focus more? I think it's the somewhat sad realization that although you can do anything, you can't do everything. Mm-hmm. You have to decide. The, the word decide comes from the Latin. The Latin root of the word decide means to cut off. So to decide is to cut off other options. So it really means saying, I can't do everything. So if I want to be good at X, <laughs> that mm. means I cannot do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. You know, you decide mm. that all these things literally will not be able to happen if you want to be good mm. at X. You know, so you just realize that. And hopefully you have that drive intrinsically. You say, I'll just mm. keep using this letter X thing, right? Yeah. You keep you want X so badly that you actually don't care about A, B, C, D, E, F, G, yeah. H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. So either you want it so badly that you are happy to just shut off everything else, say, nope, I'm not going to be water skiing. I'm not going to be a good soccer coach. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to read the news. I'm not going to know what's going on in the world. I'm not going to post my life on social media, et cetera. You just like say all these things that people act like you maybe have to do. You just say, I'm not going to do it. In yeah. fact, I'm not even going to answer my phone. I'll yeah. check my messages once a night because I'm really focused on this one thing. Yeah. And you just have to be happy to make that trade-off. Yeah. How important do you think it is to, like, I guess you have not just like something that you fully commit to, you have to love it. I think that's important. Where it's not just a curiosity in it. It's like, you know what? I love this. this is me. This is what I love. Does that come after you commit to it or is that in the front end? What do you think? I struggle mm. with that. There's a good argument either way. I don't think there's one right answer. I think there's a good argument either way, but I think it has to be, you have to be wholehearted about mm-hmm. it. It may not be necessarily love, like a passion. Some people say that you have to have the passion, but I think it could also just be like a a realization to say, this is, this is the right thing. This is what I'm going to do. Um, I'm committed to this through highs and lows, like kind of like the way that you really commit to a marriage yeah. and you say like, we're going to do this, like no matter what, it's going to be hard, yep. but we're committing to this. You could do that with a career path. Um, yeah. Somebody can just say like, you know what? I come from a family of lawyers. My dad wants me to take over the law firm. I don't love doing legal work, but I'm good at it. I've got an unfair advantage here. This is the right thing. I'm going to do this. And you just commit to it. You know, you don't have to go look for this Romeo and Juliet style passion in everything. It can just be this feeling that it's the right thing to do. Yeah, that's great. One of the other notes I took from the book, and it goes right into what you just said. You wrote, Go to the 1%, let go of the 99%. So figure out Mm. what your 1% is. And you got to have the courage and motivation and just to let go of that FOMO, that fear missing out, let go of that 99% and you find the thing. Well, that to me, that 99%, 1% thing in the book, I meant that more in terms of like marketing. Like when you're reaching out to your audience, you're not trying to please 100% of the people. You just need to find that like 1% out there that's into what you're doing okay. and proudly exclude the other 99% okay. and just not try to be everything to everyone. Go to the true believers and let go of the people that it's not for you. Understood. Yeah. Cool. Let's move on. So here we are. You just left the Berkeley College of Music. Tell us a quick over version of CD Baby. I found the uh, how you started basically CD Baby almost by accident and how it just took off. 
Sure. Started it by accident. Yeah. Let me just do the one minute version of this. Because right. um, this is an old hat at this point, right? You got to understand this is, we're talking like 1997 cool. um, that I was just selling my CD. This is back before PayPal didn't exist. Okay. Amazon was just a bookstore. If you were an independent musician, there was like literally nowhere on the internet that would None. sell your music. Nowhere. So I was just trying to sell my music online. Nobody would do it. And so I thought, ah, fuck it. How hard could it be? I'll just set up my own little store. But in 1997, it was hard. It was like three months of work, and, and you had to pay $1,000 in setup fees to get a credit card merchant account. And then it was like you had to make these like CGI bin Perl scripts to put on your server in order to process a credit card. And it was hard. But like after three months of work, I had a buy now button on my website. Cool. And uh, my musician friends in New York City at the time said like, dude, <laughs> how did you do that? Like, can you do that for me? And so even though I had never intended it to be anything but a buy now button on my band's website, I just kind of reluctantly agreed to do it for some friends as a favor. But then they told their friends. And soon the situation in 1998 was if you were an independent musician anywhere in the world and you wanted to sell your music online, the only way to do it was through some guy named Derek in New York. So just right away, CD Baby became the largest seller of independent music online. I mean, yeah, there were there were imitators about six months later after I started CD Baby. Yeah. But um, yeah, for quite a while, it was like, that was it. I was the only guy doing this thing um, because everybody else felt it wasn't worth doing. It was like, you know, think of right now how you'd feel about doing a, a poetry market for octopuses or yeah. something. You'd think, there. I don't think there's a market for that, right? That's how independent music felt in 1998. It felt like what like bar bands that have no fans why would i bother setting up a business for them but um yeah i did it uh for 10 years and it just grew and grew and grew and that's what yeah the book anything you want is my lessons learned in hindsight from starting growing and then eventually selling cd baby how did you know it was time how did you know it was time to sell cd baby so you had it for how many years (laughs) <laughs> 10 years. Wow. <laughs> and to put it in technical terms, I was fucking done. Really? <laughs> so yeah. fucking done. I was uh I was so sick of it. I had I just felt like the way that you know those people that paint a giant mural on the side of a building and it takes yep. them like a year to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And at some point they put that last brush stroke on and they look at it and they go like I think that's it. I, that's it. Yeah. I think I'm done. There's nothing else I want to change. That's how I felt about CD Baby. I'd Perfect. been doing it for 10 years. And it just felt like I have nothing more to add. I have no vision for the future of this. Like I, I'm feeling like I did it. Yep. I just want to move on now. And so it was actually Seth Godin that helped nudge me. Okay. I asked his advice at the time. And um, yeah, he kind of helped nudge me to realize that the the actually the considerate thing to do if you're the owner of a company and you don't have any vision for the future it's actually the considerate thing for your clients to sell the company because mm-hmm. your clients probably want to keep growing but if you don't you should probably sell and move on so wow. really glad that i did that's awesome so you sell- hey joe do you want to ask me what's the biggest challenge i ever <laughs> faced yes i do what is so after you go- <laughs> i thought you might <laughs> So you, so this is it, right where it comes in the story. That is absolutely perfect. So you sell CD Baby after what's <laughs> Derek? What would be the biggest challenge you ever faced? <laughs> what would be? Oh, so, it's funny that you asked. So you, um, you started a huge company, had it for ten years. So, you didn't have any vision. Talk to Seth. Seth says it's time to go. Right. So right now, what's so from looking back, what's that? Bi- what's the biggest challenge you ever faced? It was actually after that. It's funny. I, I thought. You kind of expect people to talk about the challenge being in the early years, but yeah. I have an idea for your listeners here. This I think might to might apply to a lot of people listening to this is what to do after a big success. Right? Like everybody talks about how to get successful. Almost nobody talks about what to do after you're successful, right? Uh so yes, for me it was selling CD Baby. I had millions in the bank, no responsibilities and total freedom. But now what? Mm-hmm. So 
you got to ask yourself this, like all of us here, everybody listening to this show, you're working towards something. You want more money, more success, more talent, uh, a better, a, a better romantic relationship, more fitness, whatever it may be. So ask yourself, what would happen if you had all of that come true tomorrow? Like what if tomorrow you had a hundred million dollars, the romantic partner of your dreams, all the fitness you could ever want, then what, right? You might celebrate for a bit, mm -hmm. but then what? Yeah. Like when you've been working towards something your whole life and you're used to this pursuit and the pursuit is now done, what do you do? Mm -hmm. right? So like if you're playing a board game or a video game and you win the game, what do you do? You quit playing. You say, okay, game over. I finished. I'm mm -hmm. done. Yep. But in life, we don't tend to do that. Um, so that's honestly been my biggest challenge is to ask yourself or asking myself what's worth doing after all of your dreams come true. So that's yeah. really the underlying question behind all of my writing, mm -hmm. including my last two books, especially Hell Yeah or No. The mm -hmm. subtitle is called What's Worth Doing. Yeah. And then my newest book called How to Live is kind of looking at the collage of the different ways that you could live and take it to further extremes this yeah that's been my biggest challenge uh, thank you for sharing that the, oh, thanks <laughs> what to do after big success it reminded me when you're explaining that it reminded me if you ever read about the nasa astronauts that reached the moon like buzz aldrin neil armstrong <sighs> right. a lot of them become they yes. go to the moon and they, they, the whole their whole world is space moon astronaut they get there and come back so right. many of them are alcoholics their life falls apart because they already walked on yeah and they did it and they're 35 years old and they're like what do we do now like i, I can't do anything else yeah yeah reminds me of that right yeah olympic gold medalists like Reggie, you broke the world record in something you win the gold medal now what yeah you know if you go try to shave another millisecond off your time or you do do something else it yeah. would be really interesting to i've been thinking about like I don't know if I'm up for undertaking this endeavor, but mm -hmm. maybe somebody will beat me to it, is to write a book about like, what do you do after you're rich? Or what do you do after you're successful? It's like nobody talks about this because it's so rare. And if you were to have any hint of a complaint in there, it would sound like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. first world problems, good problem to have. What do you do yeah. with all your millions? You know, yeah. uh, But it's worth looking at. And I think it's a lot of what makes people philosophical right like when you're just hyper focused on necessity and achieving something you don't usually have time to get fairly very philosophical you've got your head down on a task but it's after you've got all the freedom in the world and suddenly you know more money brings more choices yeah a lot more decisions are needed and suddenly you have to get philosophical to ask yourself what am i doing and what's worth doing yeah, no, absolutely. Say the average person listening, be like, well, I would just chill. I'd go on the beach. I, I That's great for a week, two, three. Yeah, right? <laughs> for a but week, then, a month. Yeah, yeah. yeah a month, <laughs> right? You spend the summer and go crazy. You spend the summer in Italy or summer in yeah. Hawaii. Awesome. Then what? And, or New Zealand, right? There's that great <laughs> quote, tranquility creates fragility because you, you're sitting there in the tranquil world. Oh, nice. Yeah. And at some point you just, the tranquility makes you fragile because you don't have any challenge. There's nothing pressure mm. testing you. You know what I mean? There's nothing keeping your sharp edges, you yeah. know, after a while. That, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, at some point you got to go out there and try something else. Yeah. So you start hell yeah or no real yeah. quick. A couple of just takeaways we could discuss. I love this one. One of my main takeaways was opportunities. Okay. Hell yeah. Basically the book is based on if it's not a hell yeah, it's a no, right? That's the kind of overall mm -hmm. part of you. And the one, one of my main takeaways is opportunities soon become obligations. So like you get all excited mm. and all of a sudden I'm going to do it. Like I'm going to go join a spin class and they meet four times a morning at 6 a.m. And the first one you're excited, second <laughs> right. one you're excited. Then all of a sudden, like it's, it's like, oh, I got to get up again. Like it's a grind. Like the, like the dip comes in and the, yeah. the, the newness, right? Is that, I'll, I'll leave it, I'll kick it over to you. Yeah. That's what you're saying there, right? Yeah. Well, you just have to be really careful of what you commit to. You should be really reluctant to commit to anything. The book Getting Things Done by David Allen mm -hmm. is a uh, yeah. very famous work. And it's lesson in there. It's like, okay, he says, whenever I first start working with a client, 
Fortune 500 CEO hires me for a ton of money to come straighten out their life. He said, the first thing we do is we go to their garage on a Sunday and empty out their garage. And they say, what? You know, I don't have time for this. And I say, yes, we need to, because this is an indication of how you've been treating your life. Like to clean up your life is to clean up your garage and vice versa, Mm -hmm. because it's, you've said yes to too many things. He said, "I, I want you to feel the pain of having to complete Everything you've agreed to, every item you've taken on needs to be looked after now. Like every item you've purchased, you need to look after it and put it somewhere and categorize it and take care of it. Every thing you've said yes to, every time obligation you've said yes to, you need to do all those things that mm-hmm. you've said yes to. Okay, now that we've done all that, how often are you going to say yes to things in the future now that you see how much pain it really creates? Mm-hmm. And so kind of the underlying message of getting things done is to say yes to less. Yep. And so my hell yeah or no book kind of takes that to, uh, it just gives a little rule of thumb yeah. to say, uh, here's, here's where you should draw the line. Let's, let's raise the bar all the way up yep. so that if I'm not saying like, oh my God, fuck yeah, that would be amazing. Yep. If I'm saying anything less than that, just say no to yep. almost everything. Absolutely. So basically, so you can create space for what really matters. So you're basically saying no to exactly. everything. So you can say the yes to things that matter. And then I like the one yeah. thing you mentioned where you say no to things. So you can say yes to, and the three things I, I took from the book, activities you can't imagine not doing, right? So there's something yes. that I thought that was yeah. really cool. Something that you think scary is and intriguing, yeah. like selfishly to me, this was this podcast where we're over COVID. I'm like, you know what? That scared me for five years. Mm. And I had an opportunity to finally learn how to do it. So I jumped nice. into it because it scared me. And then the last one is what would you do if you had enough money and attention? So if you were already rich and you had all the attention you needed, what would you do yeah. on the side? That's a great filter to run that stuff though. So I appreciate that. Cool. So here you are Thanks. now. So what are you saying no to now? So now you're in New Zealand. What do you like? What do you find yourself saying no to yeah. a lot? Like people come up to you with a lot of probably, hey, how about we do this? Do you want this project? What do you say no to a lot? Like what's like some of the things you say no to right away? Oh, I mean, I just these days I say no to everything. Somebody asked me recently, "What's your big yes these days?" And I went, "Huh." I had to think for a while, and I thought, "It's a great question." I don't I have one. That down. That's fantastic. And that's okay. I don't have one. I've, I felt like I was supposed to say, oh my God, what is my big yes? And it, yeah. I had to just think for a few seconds. I went, huh, like, no, there is, there is nothing right now. This is, this is the state that the Hell Yara Notebook is all about. It's like, you leave room in your life. You don't worry when you don't have some big yes, because it's like, now I've got room. So when that thing does come up, I can dive into it entirely because I've got the space in my life. So yeah, right now I just say no to literally everything. So just luckily, I mean, I have this, I have this thing on my website. Like I have an FAQ that says up front, I'm not an investor. I'm not looking for any new projects. You know, here's my email address. Please introduce yourself, say hello, but please understand in advance that, um, yeah, I'm not even going to read a book you send me because I've already got a queue of a hundred books that I've bought and want to read. And I'm looking forward to reading. I'm not going to add another book to that right now. So um, yeah, I just say no to literally everything. How many books get sent to you on a monthly basis to blurb or can you read my book? How many books do you usually get? Um, Well, none because I just tell them not to. Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's, it's not like, no, my mailing address is not public. So things don't show up at my door luckily, but even in my email address, it's just... Yeah, I actually have a shortcut in my, I set up these little macros for answering emails. I'm, I'm kind of known for having this public inbox and I, anybody listening to this, send me an email and I'll reply. But part of the reason I'm able to do that is that there are some sentences that you have to say often, such as I have a key and I hit the letter N and it says, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm completely focused on some other work. I wrote an article about this here at, you know, Sivers slash NO2, um, where I'm saying no to everything but this one thing I'm doing. So sorry, I won't be able to do it. So it's like, it's a polite, general no that I use many times a day. Because people say that like, oh God, I'm just so bad at saying no. Yeah, sure. I like, well, just say it once in a form letter and just use it many times. How about looking back? We talk about your biggest challenges. How about if you look back, What's the most successful failure you've ever had? Like, do you have a favorite failure that set you up Mm. for future success? 
Okay, this is a funny question. Um, I enjoy overthinking this question because... Okay, I'm going to take a tangent and you'll see why. I don't know if anybody has ever called you needy or if you have ever called someone else needy in like a romantic relationship kind of situation. But a friend of mine had that recently and I thought about it. And I said, you know what? You are not needy. It's just that you got yourself into a social situation where you wanted something from somebody who didn't want to give you what you wanted. And so that person called you needy. But needy is not a trait. It's not like a person is a needy person. It's describing a social situation that passed. So in that social situation, this person was needing more from that person. And so this person got labeled needy, right? So if B wants something from A, but A doesn't want to give to B, then A calls B needy. So the problem is, if B takes that to heart and thinks, I'm a bad person, I am needy, nobody's, wanna, nobody's going to love me because I am needy. But no, it was actually, needy was a social situation that has passed now, right? So I think it's similar with failure. That I know this is a bit of a cliche, but I think that failure is a situation where something didn't work out the way you want and then you unhappily quit. And it has to be unhappily, right? Because, like, I was married for six years, and then we just started going our separate ways. Like, she just really wanted a different lifestyle, and I really wanted this different lifestyle. And after six and a half years, we just, like, one day after dinner, we said, like, do you want to break up? Yeah. Do you want to break up? Yeah. All right. Did we just break up? I think we did. Cool. Let's get a lemonade. And we decided like, this happy breakup. And I remember years later, somebody said, oh, you know, how does it feel to have a failed marriage? I went, oh, no, that wasn't a failed marriage. That was a great marriage. Like, we had a great relationship for six and a half years. And then we happily quit and went our separate ways. So failure is when you unhappily quit, right? You start a business. You mm-hmm. put a creation out into the world. The world doesn't respond the way you want Things don't turn out the way you hoped, and then you unhappily quit. So that means failure is not a trait. It's a situation. Yep. Um, it's a situation of unhappily quitting. So I've only ever pursued a few things in life, right? I, we said that I wanted to be a successful musician. And for 15 years, I did nothing but pursue that. And I think after 15 years, I got to a point that wasn't the worldwide success that I wanted, but I got pretty successful. Like I made enough money as a musician that I bought a house in Woodstock with the money I made touring. And I was a full-time professional musician for eight years, something like that. And so to me, that was a success, right? And then I did CD Baby. I wanted to be a great service to musicians. I did that. I feel like I only pursue things that I'm willing to do indefinitely, right? So if if something doesn't turn out quite the way you want, you just take it as feedback, you make some adjustments, you try again. Like if you attempt something five times and you get it on the sixth, it doesn't mean the first four or five attempts were failures. They were just attempts. It took you a few tries to make it, right? So we don't label it as a failure until you unhappily quit. So yeah, there was, it's a funny question, you know, like a failure that leads to success, then by definition wasn't a failure. Yeah. I guess the question would really be, when did you unhappily quit something, learn a lesson from it, and use that lesson to be successful in something else? Yeah. Um, yeah, so sorry, I don't have a good answer yeah. to it, but I thought it was... <laughs> really interesting to think about what that question really means i am never going to look at that question the same way again when i ask another guest (laughs) that is that is going to be that is the deepest dive in that question i've heard in 54 episodes so i appreciate that thank you very much i appreciate your answer (laughs) with everything you have going on projects you're working on like when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body what do you do 
Oh, for once, I have a short answer for you. Two things. If I'm just feeling overwhelmed, I very, very often, like a couple times a day, will just go lay down. Okay. Intending to take a nap. Like as soon as I, maybe if I've answered a hundred emails or I've just been programming or I've been something and I'm like, or writing and I'm not sure what's next. Yeah. I'm like, ugh. And I'm just like, I'm going to take a nap. Mm-hmm. And I go lay down on the couch, fully intending to take a nap, but it almost never works out that way because once you kind of lay horizontal and intend to clear your mind, suddenly you go like, ooh. I just had an idea yeah. and you know, I just let myself then jump up with enthusiasm back into yeah. what I'm doing. I don't think I, I hardly ever actually fall asleep. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing that really helps that I do most days, I live in New Zealand and I live in a city called Wellington, which mm-hmm. is very, very hilly. There's no flat space in Wellington. It's all steep hills and I live at the bottom of a steep hill and it's all forest. So I go on this two hour walk. Awesome. through the very hilly forest and it's uh yeah it's exhilarating it's exhausting i'm drenched in sweat after two hours but i do this two-hour walk through the silent forest and that helps it's like that nietzsche quote or any great idea was come through walking or something like that like nietzsche mm. yeah like the, the, every great yeah, a lot. idea yeah i guess when you lay down right you're clearing your mind mm-hmm. when you go for a walk that that movement kind of clears your mind like it's almost like we just have to quiet the mind for a second. And then that's where the creativity comes from. Yeah. Ideas come from, right? Because when there's noise, there's yeah. no space for the creativity, right? There's a lot of busyness, busyness, busyness. But the open yeah. space gives you that, right? Sometimes you get in the shower, like you're taking a shower and a great idea will pop in your head. Or I get mm-hmm. it. Like if I wake up early, my kids swim and there's time that I have to get up at 5 a.m. here on, uh, in Philly to take them to swim practice. There's times mm-hmm. now I get up at 4.30. I feel like I'm late for swim practice and I'm in bed for like a half hour just staring wow. at the ceiling and I'll get some of my best, at least my ideas, some of my best ideas will come in. Yep. Like at quarter five in the morning, I actually put a notepad by my bed. Like I'll scribble something just so I don't forget it because your mind's clear. It's quiet. And that's when it comes out. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Same here. I agree. So you're an author with a couple of really cool books and most authors are huge readers. Do you have a book Mm. that influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have a favorite book? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this might be a surprise. Awaken the Giant Within by yeah. Tony Robbins. How great is that? I, oh, you've read it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, yes. You know it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, dude, I, I read that book when I was 19 yeah. and again when I was 21 and again when I was 23 and again when I was 25. Yeah. And in between, I kind of did some of his audio programs. I tried attending one of his events, but it was okay. full of these like fist pumping, you know, stand up yeah. and dance and... I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. I want the information. Um, so, um, okay. So I internalized that stuff so much that I only recently, like just a few weeks ago, went back and read the book for the first time in 25 years. Wow. And <laughs> it was like a, a Christian reading the Bible. It was <laughs> realizing like, wow, this is the source of so much of how I see the world yeah. came from this book. Um, things that to me just uh, seem like just true. This is the way the world works. I think it came from this book. So for example, this idea like you choose the way you feel, mm-hmm. right? Like a lot of people say like, oh, I can't help the way I feel. I can't help that I get angry. It's like, well, yeah, you can. You're choosing that. You're choosing to get angry. Anger, you don't get angry because somebody did something. Nobody can make you angry. Mm-hmm. You just have some rules inside of you that you're letting somebody, I mean, you're letting yourself get upset that some neutral event happened. This idea, yeah, so your emotions come from you, not from events or others. You really have absolute control over your internal world. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that's a big one. Yeah. And I also found that this this whole way of seeing the world where it doesn't matter what's true. What matters is whether this is useful to you or not. Like if it's useful for you to believe that you could die next week, we don't need to look at an actuary's statistics about how likely you are to die next week. 
if this belief serves you in some way and improves your actions in the present and serves you to make you more of who you want to be, well, then you can believe this thing. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. And that applies for everything. Some, I have many beliefs that when I've said them to somebody, they say like, but that's not true. <laughs> like, it doesn't, I don't care if it's true or not. I'm not, you know, a scientist or a journalist trying to get at the core of the truth. I'm looking for beliefs that support, um, support and encourage the actions I needed to take mm -hmm. to be who I want to be. That's what yeah. I care about. What's useful, not what's true. And um, lastly, let's say that there's also um, study that you can rewire your beliefs intentionally. That the beliefs that you have right now mostly just come from circumstance of where mm -hmm. you grew up and who your parents were and your life situation and random yeah. things that have happened. But you can deliberately change your beliefs to suit your needs to, again, to, to be who you want to be. So all of this to me is like how I see the whole world. And looking back, I think I got it a lot from this formative book, yeah. Awaken the Giant with by Tony Robbins when I was 19. And so I have to give a warning though to anybody listening to this. If you're to actually go read the book now, I don't think it's a great book. It's too verbose. And also it was written in 1991 with a lot of pop culture references to that current time. Like it was really... It holds up O.J. Simpson's as a role model because it was before, you know, the other O.J. Simpson stuff. Uh, so it has all these like really outdated pop culture references. So I, I wouldn't say it's a great book. Yeah, it's too verbose. Things are go on and on and on with too much unnecessary stories and detail. But inside it are some great, amazing life lessons. So just just forewarning to anybody who's listening to this that might go get the book. Just brace yourself. And expect it to be too verbose and dated, but glean the wisdom from inside of it. It's amazing. Yeah. There's wisdom in there to be mined. There's another book that he has, the Unlimited Power book that he wrote. And I found the daily. Oh, yeah. I love the page a day books where, where I could just read it for a minute or two. There's a page a day book out there mm -hmm. called Unlimited Power. He, he did it. And it's literally 365 ideas from his book, Unlimited Power. And you, I read one like, one a day mm. and it takes a minute and a half and some are just so spot on and some are like, ah, oh, it's crazy. But like you do, you, you, you mine the gold from it. I, I, he's, when he's on, I mean, he's cool. on like no one else, Robin. So he's, he's, he's a force of nature. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> yeah. How about, here's a fun question. If you could spend the day with any <laughs> historical figure alive or dead, who would it be? All right. I have fun overthinking this question let's too. go bring it um so all right so take some typical answers right so somebody says you know buddha jesus gandhi einstein mozart something like that yep. but would that really be a good conversation like imagine you were to spend a day with jesus yeah. and imagine you know you you speak the same language i don't know if that would be a really good conversation there would be so many references that he would say that you wouldn't get because it was the context of the time, like it lacking the context of their time, their lives, like the social situation, you wouldn't get any of the references. They might not be able to understand anything about your life. And I think a lot of their thoughts might go over your head. Like any of these people, I'm just, you know, I picked one, but you know, you could have said Beethoven or Max Planck or whoever you admire. I don't know if you'd get all the references unless you're thoroughly so seeped in that person's work like you are a scholar of this person you've read everything they've ever done you've read every critique and every reflection that people since then have published on this person and you've really thought it through thoroughly and then you spend a day with them you might have a good conversation so i think that uh, which then you might take this as a challenge to say like yeah you know i thought that i'd want to spend the day with um yeah pick it michael jordan <laughs> but um but yeah, come to think of it, you know, I haven't really read everything on the subject. You know, there's probably a lot more I could learn that's out there right now. I don't need to go spend a fictional day with this person. And then I sometimes think that anybody ancient wasn't necessarily the wisest. It's just we know how fame works. That sometimes fame amplifies one person, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. like Albert Einstein versus Max Planck. Like. Max Planck might have been more brilliant, but Einstein just somehow pop culture latched onto the guy with the big white hair 
and the mustache and said, that's the smartest person that ever lived, you know? Name a, compo- a composer, Mozart, right? Like Mozart might not have been the best or the most interesting, but we just kind of latched onto that one. So then fame amplifies the reputation mm-hmm. of somebody, but they no- might not be the most interesting person then. So I, I would have to lower my expectations of anybody who's legendary. Sure. Um, so yeah, so I, I, when I think about this question literally, and I think about like what would be the most rewarding person ever in history for me to spend the day with. So I figured it out. You ready? Yeah, hit me. It's a little sappy. Okay. My kid. The most rewarding person for me to spend a day with is my kid, who's 10 years old. Awesome. And we have so much fun. We just can't stop talking. He's just so wonderful. And that is like the most rewarding person I ever spend any time with. So that's awesome. actually my answer. That is awesome. It's for you, the first guest in like yeah. 55 episodes. But to be clear, <laughs> to be clear, my kid is alive <laughs> and I will spend the day with him all day. Um, but yeah, that is my real answer. I actually thought it through really deeply. Appreciate that. That's a deep thinking answer. I appreciate that. So that's a really, really good one. I, I thinking that if you asked me to think about that for a while, I don't know if I'd come up with my kids, but I love spending the day with my kids. That is so cool. Just backing up a little bit, we spoke about books that influenced you. One of your books that I recently read and uh, reread, excuse me, is it, and it just it hit me from all different sides. Is how to live and. Mm. Wait, just, I, I have one here by my. <laughs> there it is, and it's. I love this little book. I did the audio right, so I did. I listened to. I, I read it and I did the audio, and it is like so contradictory. Where I'm like, oh, this is what I think. I should go left, and you talk about why to go left for 20 yes. minutes, and I'm like, cool. I think that's the way I'm going to go, and then you go, this is why you got to go right, and I'm like, damn. And then like all like all of a sudden like there's there's some I'm like I don't have a good answer. Like some situations I may do this. But other situations or if, or if the circumstances changed, I would probably go that way. One, what made you, where'd you get the idea to write a contradictory book? And, mm-hmm. you know, how easy was it? Was it the easiest book to write or the hardest book to write of all yours? Oh, hardest by far. Okay. Yeah. We'll start in reverse. So yeah, the hardest, most laborious thing I've ever written is how to live. So anybody listening, if you haven't read my book called How to Live Yet, it's it's my masterpiece. <laughs> it's the best thing I've ever created by far. And it's it's pretty recent. I just finished it uh yeah, eleven months ago, a year ago. And um so the story of it is first you have to understand it's kind of an homage to a book called Sum, spelled S-U-M by okay. David Eagleman, yeah. where the subtitle of of the book Sum is 40 Tales from the afterlives. So he does this fun format. It's fiction or, you know, semi-fiction. It's a think piece about answer the question, what happens when you die, but answer it 40 times in 40 different ways. So each chapter says, here's what happens when you die. Um, You're in an empty mansion surrounded by something, something. And then you find out that, you know, God exists, but God is a creator, not a micromanager. So he kind of knocked over the first domino billions of years ago and left and doesn't know we exist. The next story will say, here's what happens when you die. Uh, You're in a waiting room and da, da, da. So every chapter disagrees with all the other chapters. And I just loved that format of like, you were used to a book having a single point of view how fun to deliberately make every chapter disagree with the rest by answering the question anew, by ans- asking one question in the title of the book, and then answering it anew in each chapter. So I loved the book Sum by David Eagleman yep. already. It was like my favorite book. And then one day I was just driving down the road and went, oh my God, I want to write a book called How to Live in the format of some mm-hmm. I was like, Oh yeah, this is what I need to do. So from that moment, it took almost four years of full-time work. Really, It was two years to write down everything I had ever learned, everything I wanted to say. And my first draft of the book was like 1300 pages. And I think had about 30 categories. 
And then I did two years of full-time editing, reducing almost every page down to a single sentence. So now the final book, I think, is 115 pages. It's tight. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's tight. It's as tight as can be. It's meant to be read slowly, almost like poetry now, where it's like every sentence represents what was a whole page of ideas. So there's not a single word in that book that doesn't need to be there. I spent two years reducing it down as short as I could yeah. and, and even chopped some chapters. So now it's 27 conflicting answers. And then I was stuck on what to do about the conclusion. Like, do I just give 27 answers and then end? And about halfway through writing, I went, oh, and I had this great idea for a conclusion. Yeah. Uh, but I have to leave that as a secret to the people that read the book. Because I won't spoil it. Yeah, if I just tell the conclusion without <laughs> you seeing the book, you know, you have to kind of, you have to work your way there for it to make any sense. So yeah, it comes to a, a very fun conclusion. And I won't ruin it, but you did a good job on the audio book explaining it without a visual in front of you. And I thought that was pretty good. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> right, right. Well, right, because the conclusion is two pictures. It's pictures, yeah. Uh, and, and you, so, you right, when it I was recording well. the audio book. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Really, really Thank good. you. Um, yeah, that was a funny challenge. One of my favorite mm. books is I'm a big fan of the writing of Ryan Holiday, like Holiday's with the Stoicism. Mm. Mm -hmm. And um, he introduced mm -hmm. me to Marcus Aurelius and his meditations book. And this is kind of like your version of meditations. Like, like, like Marcus is telling himself in meditations on how he should live. He's like, ignore them. Don't worry about what they say. Like get out of bed. Like he's like, he's like yeah. giving himself, if you read it, you think he's condescending to somebody else, but it's actually, he's written to him. He's writing to mm. himself. And exactly. I, and yeah. that's what I, I, I took out of this. Here's just a couple random things I took out. that I really, really liked. We talked about how, tranquility creates fragility earlier in the uh, podcast you know like you you mentioned about mm -hmm. the chair the softer the chair the harder it is to come out of it you put that in the book where like a soft chair is hard to get out and to me like being really really comfortable is is hard to get going again right it's a nice line right I mean, you, you put that <laughs> yeah. out i stole yeah. from you man and then how about you said passion comes after you get good i think i asked you that earlier you know do you need the passion mm -hmm. to say yeah like sometimes like I have kids in sports and they're not into it until they start kicking butt or not or kicking butt. They start having some level of mm. success. Like I have a daughter who swims mm -hmm. and she was okay with swimming. Then she jumped in a few of the meets and she got her best time. And she started competing with some of the really good swimmers and she was getting comparable times and she got really into swimming, but it came after the passion mm. came after the success. I'm sure that's not a hundred percent, but does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That's, I think that there's a, a whole book about that called So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport. Yeah, he, he makes that point really well to say, like, a lot of people say, you know, I'm just out of college. I don't know what to do. What's my passion? And his argument is that, yeah, passion is something that it's a feeling you feel from the rewards after you get good at something. And he said, you know, Steve Jobs, his passion wasn't computers. His passion was yoga and meditation. But then he just stumbled on this opportunity where his friend Steve Wozniak said, hey, I think we could make some computers. Steve Jobs said, yeah, I think we could sell them. And they did this thing. And like, after a while, this became his passion because it was rewarding. Mm. But that wasn't his first passion. So I think, yeah, that the world starts rewarding you with something. Either sometimes you have a natural aptitude, you know, I'd like to think that practice is everything, but we do have natural aptitudes for things. And so whether it's because of your natural aptitude or, you know, just persistent practice, you get great at something, that's when you start to get rewarded by the world. And that's when you start getting really into it. Like, oh my God, this is so rewarding. Yeah. God, maybe that's even the definition of what we call passion is that feeling of, oh my God, this is so rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Just two more quick points from How to Live. I love the book. Hmm. And two things that just really resonated with me. I'm a big break guy. Like I like to go hard, but then I need like two, three minutes, five minutes. I lead a sales team here in this in Philly. And when we have a meeting, like every 55 minutes, I take a five minute break. Like we don't go for like four nice. hours and take an hour break. Like we go for 50 minutes and everyone nice. leaves the room, go bathroom, make a call, see in five minutes. And you you write in the book, take tiny breaks to go longer. 
you mentioned about doing pull-ups, maybe something like that. Maybe it's a pull-up or push-up analogy. I forget, but I noticed that in my life that really resonated with me. That really, like I connected with that. Nice. And lastly, cool. The second one I really liked is don't get a shield, get a saddle. You're not trying to stop adversity. I just want to be able to ride the adversity out, right? Or if there's a situation, I don't want to nice. ignore it. I want to like, oh, just let me be able to ride this almost like surfing. I don't want to ignore the waves and not go mm-hmm. in the ocean. I just want to be able to like get on that surfboard and ride the wave. You know what I mean? So get a saddle, not a shield. Cool. I thought that's super cool. Where'd you come yeah. up with that analogy? Yeah. Where, where? That was just my, I don't know. I just came up with that. That was some... Um... And that was part of the four years of writing, you know, yeah. sometimes just sitting there thinking deeply for hours about what's the most succinct way to say this. You know, when we skipped over this, but it's like I I spent 15 years of my life, all those years that I said I was a musician, that was 15 years being a songwriter. And when you're a songwriter, you've got something you want to say, but the melody goes, <laughs> da, 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 da. and you think like, da, 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 da. okay, I've got six syllables to say this. Like, how can I say what I want to say in six syllables? And, uh, uh, uh. Um, yeah, because often the melody comes first. And so, you know, I spent 15 years of my life trying to think of how to say things in a few syllables. And so I think that's what you see in my writing. You can hear like conversationally, I'm, I'm more verbose, but in my writing is just super tight. Yeah. You know, I try to like not waste people's time and not kill a single tree that doesn't need to be killed to print pages in a book, you know? I think in this day and age, that's more impactful too. When you have those those short, choppy things, those punches to the face, they're really good. So to be respectful of your time, I I really appreciate you. Just wrapping up here, last question, second to last question. (laughs) That that wasn't an invitation to wrap this up. (laughs) Just so you know, that wasn't, uh, wasn't, I I wasn't trying to make a subtle point, no. Of all the stuff you got going on, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? What's got your attention? Honestly, it's um, it's just trying to be a better writer. Like, like there is no kind of like we said earlier. I don't have a big hell yeah right now, except if you want to call it like just this commitment to trying to be a great writer. I never thought of myself as a writer until just a few years ago. I thought of myself as like a programmer and entrepreneur that sometimes I share what I've learned. But just a few years ago, I realized that all of my heroes are writers. Like the people I look up to most in the world are the authors of my favorite books. And I think that can be a really good hint to yourself. If you ask yourself, who are my heroes? That shows you what direction you're facing. It shows you who you aspire to be. And that can help you focus if you're not really sure sure what direction you want to go ask yourself who your heroes are so when i asked myself who are my heroes i realized they're all authors and i thought god this is really something that's worth doing to me i love the process of asking myself questions coming up with answers that are not just useful but also interesting and so to be a writer you have to think of an interesting angle that's useful to other people and interesting to others and so i think that's a great challenge for myself that i can share with others and so yeah, that's my most worthy endeavor right now. Just to synthesize there, you're saying if you're confused on which way to go or what you need to do next, look at who are your heroes. That's a great, great way to filter out what your next move. Rapping, if I could talk to you all day, be respectful. Hopefully some point down the road, we can have you back on. So much, Thanks, more, like to, like to, so much more I'd like to cover, but just want to wrap up here. Last question. It's a fun one. Uh, okay. Derek Sivers, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Hmm. All right. Well, I literally don't want a tattoo. So if I was in some situation where you said I had to, and somebody was, you know, saying, you know, the new overlords are here. You're, everybody must have a, a quote or a saying tattooed on your body. If I had to, then I think I would somehow argue that having a single period would be my minimalist statement on the world and i would just get them to you know put a dot on me i'd say there okay i have fulfilled the requirement i have put a tattoo on my body but i think what you're really asking is what saying or quote do i think is that important and so if i overthink this one for fun um I had an initial reaction, which is whatever scares you, go do it. But 
that's been like my quote or saying for myself for 30 years now. And I think I've really internalized that one. Like, I don't need that tattooed on me. I got it. Mm. <laughs> it is thoroughly internalized. So then I would think, okay, well, what's another one that I would need to internalize now to be who I want to be? And then it would be something else. I'm not even sure what that something else would be because I think I would internalize that for a period, whether a few months or a few years. And then that one would be thoroughly internalized. And then I would need a different one. So I don't think there is just one that you can say, this is what I need for the rest of my life. I need this sentence for life. I think that's actually really limiting. I think you could just you can't take that fucking long to learn one sentence <laughs> and to get it you know, into your DNA. So no, I think it would be ever-changing. So my answer again i will never look at that question the same again that's the deepest thought i got from any guest so i appreciate that i think that is about as good Thanks, as a spot as any to wrap up Derek Sivers. i'd like to thank you for your time i like to thank you for your work I, I just love your books i love your stuff you got the coolest website i'll put everything <laughs> you spoke of in the show notes but if people are looking for you Thanks. online where can they find you email I, like I said earlier, I actually answer every email and I thoroughly enjoy it. I get such interesting emails from people introducing themselves. You know, I'm a guitar builder in Slovenia. I'm a forest ranger in Alaska. I get such cool emails from people just saying hello. You don't even need to ask me a question. Just go to my website, sive.rs, and you will see the contact me link. And just send me an email and introduce yourself and tell me you heard me on Joe's show. Awesome. So just go to your last name, Sivers Online, and it's all there. The books are Anything You Want, Hell Yeah or No, How to Live, some great stuff, and um, got some great TED Talks up there. (laughs) There they are. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I don't even really do social media, really. Just everybody go to my website, send me an email, introduce yourself, say hello. You got it. Well, Derek, it's been an honor, and just keep going. Thanks for all the great work. I really appreciate it, man. Cool. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. See ya.